I hope you have your Bibles with you and that you'll turn in them to Matthew 13. Okay, so after I said what I said last week about some of the Bibles having different page numbers, I went and pulled as not literally all of them, but a bunch of them, and I couldn't find a single one that had a different page number. So I think we're on page 818, and if you have a different one, I'm sorry, but, but probably you have uh, the Bibles in the back of the chairs turning to 818 in order to be at Matthew 13 in our passage for today. Excuse me, 819. <laughs> Here I go making a big deal about the page number, and then I don't even get the one right that I have in front of me. 819 if you're using the Bibles in the chairs. I suspect that any, uh, or perhaps I should say, those who have been followers of Jesus for a lengthy period of time will be familiar with one of the subjects of this third parable of Jesus found in our text for today. But I also suspect that your familiarity with that subject, if you've been a Christian for a while, may actually be related to a different instance of Jesus' teaching where the same subject is mentioned. What I'm talking about is the mustard seed. I enjoy mustard, mostly on sandwiches and hot dogs, and uh, I prefer the kind of mustard that's got less yellow dye and more seeds in it, like the brown stone ground stuff you can find in King Supers for a couple of bucks. It's got a, a zest to it that I enjoy. I enjoy mustard with the mustard seeds in it. And mustard seeds are actually mentioned by Jesus on more than one occasion, as I've just intimated. And my guess is that the majority of, of the believers' recollections of mustard seeds in Jesus' teaching isn't the one that we have before us today. Perhaps when you think of a mustard seed in the Bible, your mind first goes to the verse in, later in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. The issue in that passage, of course, is one of faith, and we'll get there when we get there. But the mustard seed in the first portion of our text for today is used by Jesus to illustrate something else. In that passage in Matthew 17, he's speaking of the need for the disciples to increase their faith to the size of something incredibly small because their faith was even smaller, which we'll address at a later date. But in our text, he's utilizing the fact that a mustard seed grows to an exponentially larger size in order to illustrate something regarding his kingdom. Now, I'm no botanist, and so I haven't got some sort of thorough scientific analysis of mustard plants for you today. You don't want that anyway. But I think it's worth noting some things about mustard seeds in Palestine in order for us to understand this passage. Mustard seeds grow into mustard trees which produce these little pods in which the seeds, more of them, grow. And those seeds, of course, were then used for seasoning, similar to what we do today, though I don't think they had bottles of mustard on their grocery store shelves. About the size of the head of a needle or pin is how big a, a mustard seed typically is. Very small. If you look at it at the tip of a finger, it would be about the size of a, a pinhead. Uh, though it is normal for a mustard tree to be called a tree, it actually looks a little bit more like a bush when it's fully grown, a rather large bush, potentially. And as I said, these seeds were known for being quite small, though technically not the smallest seed ever, but it was certainly the most small commonly planted in that region 
seed to which Jesus refers in our text. And from that seed would come a tree, or, or a bush you could say, that was normally around six feet tall, but in some cases could reach nine to 13 feet even in height. The branches of these mustard trees, trees in that region were frequented by the birds of that region, which were typically finches, in part because these bushes provided some shade on which these birds could, uh, the branches of which these birds could perch and be protected from the elements or even uh, predators such as hawks. And also the finches liked to eat the seeds that could be found in those pods. So when Jesus is talking about a mustard seed and using it as an illustration of what the kingdom of heaven is like, he is referring to something that the people around him can, can sort of picture in their minds. This tiny seed that grows into an exponentially larger plant, you could call it a tree, from which more seeds would come and in which birds would gather for protection and sustenance. But while the historical and geographical context of this idea of a mustard seed is helpful to digest a bit, as we've just done for a moment, in order to understand what Jesus is saying and how the people would have identified with it, it's even more important for us to remember the context biblically and the context theologically in which we are given these words from Jesus. This passage, relatively short passage, lies within a section containing the third major discourse of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And it consists primarily of parables or short stories with a spiritual meaning. There are seven parables in this discourse of Jesus. And these two parables before us that Christiana just read for us are what I've been calling parables about the spread of the kingdom starting from small beginnings. The intro parable from which the next six flow is that first one, and then these bookend parables that start and finish the heart of the teaching, and then these smaller pairs in the middle about the spread of the kingdom and then the value of the kingdom. And there's a message at the heart of this teaching of Jesus in this discourse that his kingdom, which I've suggested we could think of as the reign of God through his king over his world was being ushered into this new era through Jesus' earthly ministry. And of course, the second part of that message being that a response to this news was necessary from everyone, either to embrace him or to reject him. Jesus was also saying that his kingdom would ultimately be characterized and populated by his loving children that did embrace him instead of rejecting him. And so this was good news for his people, for those who follow him, and bad news for his enemies. His people could be assured that their destiny was one of a relationship with their king forever, but his enemies could be justifiably afraid of the end coming for them if they never repented. So that's the, the message of these parables before us in this third discourse and the one that we're looking at today about the spread of the kingdom. 
There's actually an, a, another bit of important context that we have to consider, which is that before and after this smaller group of parables before us today, the third and fourth parable, is the telling of the parable of the weeds in front of it and its explanation after it. You see this in Matthew 13. You see how it's laid out. Verses 24 through 30 is this parable of the weeds. And then right after it comes our text in verses 31 through 33. And then after Matthew's sort of editorial comments, you might say, in verses 34 through 35, we have this explanation to the disciples after they ask in verses 36 through 43. After which, of course, then Jesus teaches his disciples some more things about the kingdom through some more parables. So so here's what I'm getting at. Jesus gives the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast in the context of the parable of the weeds, which ends with this promise in verse 43. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I think this points to these parables having a cohesive, encouraging theme for his people. Oh, yes, there is warning, too. We've looked at that already. There is only good news if there is also bad news. Salvation is from something. It's from sin and its penalty. But the audience that Jesus is focused on here is his Disciples, those who are following him. And if you're curious about how exactly the audience shakes out in this chapter, I think that it's the crowds for verses 3 through 9, and then again in verses 24 through 33, and then his disciples are his audience in verses 11 through 23, and then again in verses 37 through 50. Because remember, the disciples asked him in verse 10 why he was speaking to the crowds in parables. And he said that it was in part so that some of the kingdom message would remain secret and concealed from those who had hardened themselves against him. And that it was revealed to those who would embrace him, such as the disciples asking him at that very moment, which is why he then goes on to explain both the parable of the sower to his disciples and the weeds to his disciples in verses 18 through 23 and 37 through 43, respectively. And so what I'm trying to point out here is that the bulk of his teaching in this third discourse was aimed at his disciples, those who were following him. He was telling them that there would be sown seeds in non-receptive soils. He explains that to them. He was telling them that there would be weeds among the wheat, but that in the end, his kingdom the kingdom that they were part of, would prevail. And of course, this teaching contained a warning for unbelievers too, but it was especially encouraging to believers. So I think we have two encouragements from these two small parables in our text today. The first being an encouragement about the exponential expansion of the kingdom. The exponential expansion of the kingdom, I believe, is found in this first small parable in our text, verses 31 through 32. Look at it again briefly. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took 
and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of, all, of the air come and make nests in its branches. It's in this context of hope regarding the kingdom of heaven that Jesus says these words. He's saying that the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom, God's rule through God's king in God's world is like a mustard seed that starts small, is sown or planted in a small state, but then grows into a tree. I've already talked a little bit about mustard seeds, but just a couple more exegetical things to observe here. First of all, when Jesus says in verse 32 that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds, can't take that hyper-literally. First of all, because this is a parable, and in parables sometimes hyperbolic language is used for literary effect. And second, because while there are other small seeds, mustard seeds, as I already said, were the smallest commonly planted in that region. So it's fine for Jesus to say that they're the smallest of all the seeds, even though technically it's not the smallest seed in human history. So don't get hung up on that. Don't let anyone else get you hung up on that either when Jesus says the smallest of all the seeds. Second exegetical thing to observe here is that if you have an ESV in front of you or a CSB or some other translations, Jesus says in verse 32 that the birds of the air come make nests in its branches. And some people have dug into the language here and the geographical context and into the mustard tree a bit more and have found information regarding the branches not being thick enough to support nests even for small birds. And so they say, oh, Jesus wasn't telling the truth here. This whole illustration breaks down. But don't get hung up on that either because a better translation of the Greek is actually to perch not just to make a nest as in a home. And in fact, if you have the NIV in front of you today, they use that word, to perch. So just a couple little notes there in case those phrases would either uh, hang you up or you've heard someone mention that before to understand what the text is actually saying. That's the scene of this parable. An extraordinarily small seed growing into a plant big enough that birds can come perch on it and find shelter and sustenance. And that's what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven, God's rule through God's king in God's world. It's like a seed that is planted small, but ends up spreading from its roots into an exponentially larger living organism that winds up producing food and shelter for birds. I think we can all get the picture here pretty simply. That Jesus was saying that the kingdom of heaven would start small in a sense in terms of its earthly presence and visibility during Jesus' earthly ministry, but then expand into something exponentially larger. And I think that would have been compelling for the crowds to consider. Why? Well, for one thing, this guy from Nazareth, a lowly carpenter's son, born amid rumors of scandal, was now teaching the Jewish people that he was the instrument of the ushering in of the kingdom of God. 
And he was saying that this kingdom was going to be successful. And he was predicting its exponential expansion and likening it to the exponential growth from a tiny mustard seed to a mature tree or bush, if you like. For another thing, Jesus was using language that devout Jews would have recognized as similar to an Old Testament passage regarding God's kingdom being the residence of even non-Jewish people along with the Jews. I'm talking about Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24. I have it on the screen for you. It says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, I make high the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. These words were given in the context of a pronouncement of judgment upon the Babylonians through a parable in Ezekiel's prophetic ministry, where God in this parable in Ezekiel is using plant and agricultural and even bird images to say that even though his enemies had opposed his plans for his gracious rule over his people, he would judge those enemies and plant what would seem to be only a small sprig, or you could say stem, of his kingdom and turn it into a great tree in which every kind of bird would be blessed. And in Matthew 13, in our text this morning, he's using similar language. And I think that would have been compelling to an astute Jewish listener. I also think it's compelling because as he was describing what the kingdom was like and said that it was like a tree that started from a small seed and grew exponentially to the end that birds would find a safe place to be fed and sheltered in it, he must have also been saying something about his kingdom being a safe haven in which to reside. In other words, a kind of expression of how much you might want to be part of his kingdom. There was kind of a call there implied. You want to be part of this kingdom, he's saying. It may seem at first to be small and unimpactful, but it's going to grow and it's going to be a place where every kind of bird finds rest and sustenance. So I think it was, would have been compelling for the crowds, but I also think it would have been encouraging, as I've already said, for the disciples to hear. Because, think back to some of the things that Jesus had already said about what life in his kingdom would be like. About what life in his service would be like. About what ministry for his disciples would be like. He had already told them that the spreading of the good news of his kingdom was going to be difficult. It was going to be fraught with opposition. It was going to include suffering. And it would include what some perhaps would describe as failure. And now, he was saying, in essence, even though it is going to be hard, as I've taught you, you are going to see some gospel seeds bear fruit. 
You're going to see some not bear fruit. You're going to face persecution. But in the end, this kingdom will not fail. In fact, this kingdom is going to expand exponentially to the point of reaching farther than even this Jewish nation. Don't you think that would have been encouraging for the disciples to hear in that moment? Don't you think it would have been encouraging for later disciples to hear about and read about? Remember, Matthew wrote this gospel and it was distributed after the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. It was actually finished and distributed sometime in the latter half of the first century. Some scholars say it was towards the end, maybe in the 80s AD or 60 AD at the earliest. So think about what the believers would have thought once it was written and distributed and they heard and or read these words. By this time, Pentecost had happened. Many had been added to the number of the church, including people from some foreign regions. But aside from that occasion at Pentecost, which was indeed spectacular and miraculous, what was characterizing the spread of the gospel in the church? Small, ordinary, organic, plodding movement. Home gatherings. There were a few worship services in a jail cell. Churches springing up in some places, yes. Gospel growth, yes. But compared to the growth of the Roman Empire in which they resided, or in comparison to the influence of the Caesar? But then they heard these words of their beloved Lord and Master from Matthew's Gospel, and maybe their hearts perked up just a bit after hearing the reminder of this promise from their king, King Jesus, that his kingdom would expand exponentially. And maybe, just maybe, their resolve was then steeled and their hope rekindled, being reminded that what at that moment and in their perspective seemed to be merely a small and fledgling movement with little momentum and hardly any cultural or social or political influence was heading for a day where the whole earth would be filled with the glory of King Jesus. That's the first encouragement from Jesus in these two small parables, the exponential expansion of the kingdom. The second is an encouragement about the positive permeation of the kingdom. Couldn't help myself and try to do some alliteration there. Right after this illustration of a small mustard seed growing into a much larger tree, he then turns to another illustration of something else that's small, this time leaven. Or, as we would perhaps more commonly refer to it, yeast. Look at this, this verse one more time. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Again, I think the point here is pretty self-evident. And what I've already said about the mustard seed is related to what Jesus says here about the yeast. The difference between them, though, is that a mustard seed is planted and expands exponentially while a bit of yeast is placed in an environment with different essential characteristics and then changes that environment 
to create something totally unique. Now, I am quite the expert when it comes to cooking and baking. For example, two Saturdays ago, I did what I do every Saturday, which is bake pancakes for the whole family. Sometimes I let Kate do it, but usually anything and everything in the kitchen is my domain. I'm totally kidding. For those of you who don't know me very well, that is not the case. Now, I did do pancakes a couple of weeks ago, but that was because Kate was at the women's retreat, and I may have just done the just-add-water pancake mix because that's pretty much the extent of my baking ability. I did not do the from-scratch method that Kate does most Saturdays. So I'm actually not a baking expert at all. I was just kidding. But I do know that though there are some nuances depending on what kind of yeast you're using and what exactly you're looking to accomplish, yeast basically works this way. Adding it to flour leads to that flour rising and eventually turning into bread. You don't eat the flour on its own. You don't eat the yeast on its own. But you combine them, and the flour will change into bread. I know there's more to it than that, but that's the essential elements of what's going on here. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that his kingdom is like yeast that, when added to flour, leads to it changing into bread. He actually says in the text here, three measures of flour. That's around 50 pounds of flour. That's a lot. The bags that we get at King Supers are two pounds. So we're talking about 25 of those two-pound bags of flour. And Jesus is pointing out the fact that just a small amount of yeast or leaven can affect a large amount of flour. Now, there are some exegetical questions here worth asking too, such as this. Is Jesus using this illustration of yeast here to talk about something negative in contrast with the parable before it? Because if you look at Jesus' use of leaven in other places in the scriptures, you'll see that he references leaven as an illustration in order to warn about the possible contamination of these people of his and their beliefs through something seemingly small. Well, my take on it is that Jesus' point here is about the permeation of his kingdom into the whole world, which is a very positive thing, affecting the environment that it's in to bring about something positive. Not that it will be without any opposition, not that it would be without any difficulty, but it will positively affect the world that it's in. Remember the context. Again, Jesus is addressing the possible, even probable sense that being a small minority in the world will lead to little to no impact. And what he said so far is that there will be seeds that land on good soil and will produce fruit. He also gave the parable of the weeds that stated while weeds are a presence, come harvest, there will be wheat that exists and will ultimately prevail and the weeds will be discarded. So sure, it's possible that Jesus is deliberately using the image of leaven or yeast in a sort of ironic way to say that something that might be regarded as a negative will be used to impact his kingdom. Things regarded as a negative in that society, such as fishermen or tax collectors. But we're only left to speculate on that. The bigger point here, I think, is clear that the kingdom will affect the world in a mighty way just like a pinch of yeast can transform 50 pounds of flour into enough bread to feed a small army 
so will the kingdom of God affect the world. But I wonder if when you hear these things, you might feel a little hesitant or twist your head and scrunch your eyebrows at such things. Has the kingdom of God truly, to use my alliterated phrase, positively permeated the world? Or do we see instead a constant barrage of evil where it seems as if evil is prevailing? I suppose that your answer to that question depends on how invested you are in the work of the kingdom. If your perspective on how successfully the gospel is spreading and how the reign of King Jesus is affecting the world is more doom and gloom than not, it might be because you're on social or news media too much and not engaging in the kingdom work of God yourself. Because I can guarantee you, I mean this, 100% guarantee, if you were to start investing in one person, I mean truly investing in them, reading the scriptures with them together, inviting them into your life in order to love and serve them and point them to Jesus and help them pursue growth as a disciple of Jesus. If you start investing in just one person in this way, over time, your perspective on the power of the gospel advancing in the hearts and lives of people in this world will become more and more increasingly positive. I promise you that. You'll see it happening. You'll see the kingdom advancing. You'll see a, a pinch of yeast, so to speak, leading to a positive permeation. And I'm not talking about just one meeting at a coffee shop where you try to encourage someone once, or, or I'm not even talking about this, this idealized view that we might have that we're going to have this meeting with someone and they're going to become dramatically converted or they're going to take some major step forward in the life of, of sanctification as someone who's already a believer. No, I'm talking about long-term, small, and slow, mustard seed-sized, yeast-sized beginnings and steps that are then taken, driven by investment in the kingdom of God that looks more like your vocation than your Sunday morning hobby. You get invested in the kingdom work of Jesus in this local church and in your home and in other parts of the world, and you will see just how positive the effect of Jesus' gospel has had, is having, and will continue to have all the way until the consummation of the kingdom. So friends, how do we response, respond to these truths? I'd like to offer us four responses to the truth regarding the spread of God's kingdom. The first three are fast. The first is a response of thankfulness for having been granted kingdom access. First and foremost, brothers and sisters, if you are a child of God and you are a member of his kingdom, the, the world over which he reigns through his king, be thankful that you have been graciously granted access into the kingdom of God by the pure grace of God. In our fellowship groups meeting this past Wednesday, Pastor Paul said something about his own response to the parable of the weeds in his heart being this reminder that he deserves to be treated like a weed and discarded. 
I thought that was profound. Amen to that. We who have been brought into God's kingdom through repentance of sin and embracing Jesus as Savior and King do not deserve to be called the children of God. We deserve judgment. But praise God, Jesus has come to live a life of perfect obedience to his Father, to die an atoning death in our place so that we might be united to him in faith, having been raised from the dead in triumph over sin and death. And if you've never believed on Jesus in this way, today is the day. Cry out to him in faith, turn from your sins, trust him for the salvation of your soul that you need in order to be part of God's family. Christian friends, look at what Jesus is saying about the spread of his kingdom from small beginnings and rejoice and be thankful that you are part of it. That's response number one, thankfulness for kingdom access. Second is humility in kingdom service. And I think that flows out of the first one. If you understand how undeserving your access in the kingdom is, you will be humble in the way that you serve King Jesus in his kingdom. I think it's kind of related to what I mentioned about Paul's comment in our fellowship group. We who have been granted access into God's kingdom have also been called to serve in it. We talked about this in our fellowship group too. We haven't been called to hide or to be holed up, so to speak, in our cookie-cutter suburban homes or our property far, far away from neighbors, just waiting for Jesus to return so that we can escape all these nasty weeds around us and avoid the pain and suffering associated with kingdom work. No. We've been called to go. We've been called to serve. We've been called to get our hands dirty with the mess of what it is to do life with fellow image bearers of God who need the news of salvation, to jump into people's lives with sacrificial love, to study our Bibles and wear out our knees in prayer so that we may be formed into the image of Jesus and then shine as light in his world, to be invested in the spread of the kingdom of Jesus. That's what we've been called to do. And doing so takes humility. It often requires the setting aside or letting go of completely one's plans or one's preferences. And you know what it always requires? It always requires death to self. Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. And that leads to the third response, which is faithfulness in kingdom work. If Jesus is the king, and if he has promised that his kingdom is spreading, then our response is simply faithfulness. We're not the ones in charge of the spreading taking place. It's not up to us, or it's not on us to make sure this happens. The king is doing it. I read a great book a couple of years ago, or whenever it was, a year and a half ago, by Holly's parents called Liberating Your Ministry from the Success Syndrome, where Kent and Barbara Hughes seek to encourage particularly pastors, but any local church minister of any sort, to remember that success, quote unquote, in kingdom ministry is not to be defined in worldly terms, but in 
God's terms. And they give several of them, but one of the most essential of those, Kent and Barbara argue, is faithfulness. Even when that looks and feels like monotonous plodding. The same thing every week or every day. Even when kingdom growth in our perspective seems slow. Because the kingdom of God is spreading. And we get to be part of it simply by being faithful to what he's called us to do. The fourth and last response is this, and I think it's the big one. Confidence in kingdom growth. I think we must respond to this passage as believers with confidence in the truth that the kingdom of God has grown, is growing, and will continue to grow no matter the opposition it faces, no matter the persecution that may come, no matter the difficulties that may lie along the way. I wonder if you would identify with some of the probable feelings of the members of the early church who resided in the Roman Empire that I suggested just a few minutes ago. Who may have felt or thought, sure, Christianity is growing all over the world, but in our culture, man, we feel like the minority. I wonder if you feel that in the context of this specific local church. They're by no means an enormous gathering. We've been in existence since 2010. And all the church planting books and the growth strategies would have laid out a game plan for Redeemer Bible Church to have like four or 500 people on a Sunday by now, and it hasn't turned out that way. In fact, looking outside our specific church body, we can see Christianity in our culture as seeming like more of a fledgling movement rather than a flourishing one. We see the advancement of secular agendas in our day and in our place. We see the suffering and persecution that goes on all around the world and in some ways in our own culture, and perhaps in your life. The difficulties of what it is to be and make disciples in a world where the evil one's strategies lurk at every corner. Friends, remember the parables of the leaven and the mustard seed. These words of Jesus are a promise in the form of a parable. That the kingdom of heaven is like a small mustard seed that when sown expands into an exponentially larger tree in which every kind of bird comes for shelter and sustenance. And it's like a pinch of yeast that has the power to positively permeate 50 pounds of flour over time. Friends, the kingdom of God has faced many opponents over the millennia since Jesus uttered these words, seated in a boat on the shore of the sea. In fact, I think of one such example of this that occurred in 1776 when the French philosopher Voltaire, who was strongly critical of Christianity, predicted that 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Well, spoiler alert, there are still plenty of Bibles left. And in fact, as the story goes, just about 50 years after his death, his house was used 
by the Evangelical Society of Geneva to store Bibles and gospel literature. And printing presses that he used to print his criticisms and slander of Scripture were then used to print more Bibles. Friends, that's just one example of how the kingdom of God has been advancing over and over and over again since Jesus said these words time after time, despite opposition and persecution. Friends, there's nothing new that's going on in our culture and society that the world hasn't faced before. Looks a little different, might have some different flavors, but opposition to the kingdom of God has always existed and it has never succeeded. From first century gatherings in homes for worship to multiple local churches spread all over every continent on this planet. Actually, I'm not sure if there's one on Antarctica, but you know what I mean. It's spread to the point that we're sitting here right now. We are here because of the expansion of the kingdom of God. And yes, there are a lot of gospel seeds that still need sowing. And there are places on this earth where the good news of the kingdom of Jesus has either not been sown at all or not very much, or that has been met with rocky ground and hardened pathways and thorny opponents. But through disciples like those gathered around Jesus in Matthew 13 at that very moment, and disciples like you and me, through us, King Jesus's message of salvation to all who repent and believe in his gospel has spread is spreading and will continue to spread until the very last moment before his final return and the consummation of his earthly reign. We're not going to have quiet prayers at the end of this uh, sermon today. I'm going to close us in prayer and then we are going to stand and sing rejoice the Lord is king. May we leave with a message of hope in our hearts and may we go be part of the expansion of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the good news and the promise of your word that you are the king, that your kingdom cannot fail, that your rule over earth and heaven is now and forever. I pray that you would help us as a body engage in these things to the best of our ability as faithfully as we can. And I pray that you would use our church, perhaps compared to a mustard seed or a pinch of leaven at this moment, to bring about gospel growth in your kingdom all the way to the end of our age. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's rejoice in our great King.